Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to have on the podcast Matt McGregor, Greg Grant, and Pete Modigliani from the MITRE Corporation to discuss their new paper, Five First Steps to a Modern Defense Budgeting System. Guys, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Good to be here. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks. Matt, you and Pete have been on the podcast before. And by the way, for everybody, Pete has a new newsletter out, Defense Acquisition Innovation, so you should definitely check that out. How can our audience find that, Pete? Through my Twitter account, at PeteMODI or on LinkedIn. There's links right there. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, it's, it's a great newsletter. It comes out every Saturday, so I recommend it. And then I'd also like to welcome Greg to the program, who has not been on before, but he's the director of the Center for Technology and National Security at MITRE. And before that, he was senior director of strategy at the Defense Innovation Unit, DIU, supported the deputy secretary of defense in various capacities, was a speechwriter for the secretary of defense and actually had a career in journalism before that. Greg, I want to start with you. The paper's title, On Defense Budgeting, it seems narrow, but then you guys take a very sweeping look at strategy, execution, oversight, and everything else. But ultimately, budget policy is military policy. So let's just start it from the top here. What's the problem with strategic guidance today? I think the biggest problem, and DOD's long suffered from this one, is a lack of focus and a lack of prioritization. And that starts at the very top. And particularly in the post-Cold War era, the defense establishment writ large has lacked some any kind of real top-down direction for the department's senior leadership in terms of a specific threat to design against, or even a unifying concept of operation for which the services could, should design toward. Instead, the strategic guidance usually provides some kind of amorphous direction to prepare to dominate across the full spectrum of conflict was a very popular phrase for a long time. But without prioritizing either threats or specific operational challenges. And because there's this absence of specific strategic direction and any real prioritization of specific challenges to design against, the services have really broad latitude in terms of providing their own interpretation of what they want to include in their POM. And that just makes change inherently difficult. I, I think it's a, we see the services, it's the POM building. It's, a, it's basically a, a bottom-up process in many ways because the services, once they bring the, their budget forward, it's, it's a complex process to even build the POM. By the time it gets in any kind of a review process, it's hard to make any real changes. I think I think it was Peter Levine was on one of your podcasts, and, and he made the point that it's, it, the process has just gone too far in empowering the services over OSD the bottom-up approach versus the top-down, if you will. And I think he made, it, he made a good point. You really have to, if the PBE system is going to work at all, it has to start with the objectives and then prior, prioritize those objectives and then figure out what you most need to meet those priorities. So it's going down rather than going up. And I think that the, the, let's take the 2018 NDS, if you will. It was originally touted as, oh, this big changing document is going to change DOD's direction. It had some emphasizing great power competition and emphasizing China and Russia, sure. But then it didn't get into the specifics of what the services needed to do or what was the strategic deter and if necessary defeat. What 
where are the specifics like we had during the Cold War era where the entire building was focused on defeating a Soviet threat to NATO in Central Europe. And so it was this that unifying vision, if you will. And that's just as it, it, that was lacking in that my own interpretation anyway, is that was lacking the 2018 NDS. And then you just didn't have any follow through really in terms of implementation, which I think is you see that the DoD has suffered from just a lack of implementation, if you will. All indications are that the, that the force isn't any more any stronger or more capable today than it was beginning back in 2018. In fact, if anything, things have gotten worse as we've seen China on this hyper-modernization program. And if you just look across the board, be it in air superiority or the maritime balance, it's just that things have gotten, seem to have gotten worse over time. One of the examples, uh, just to show the disconnect, and I think Greg will agree with this, is, you know, the Air Force came out with its agile combat employment. And theoretically, that syncs up with the joint warfighting construct that says uh, capabilities will have to disaggregate, aggregate to disaggregate, right? So the idea being, we won't be able to approach a China conflict with all forces coming in this big sweeping campaign. It's going to be more chaotic. You're going to have multiple capabilities operating in, in different places, different domains at different times, coming together to achieve effects. So conceptually, right, the agile combat employment aligns with that. But then you look at the investments that the Air Force is making against it. And those platforms that we're investing in really don't achieve that. They're not things you can just land on any old runway anywhere or things that you can are easy to maintain, like an F-35 or something, or NGAD or you know, these advanced platforms there's really not the investments that actually show that joint vision is being achieved. So I think that's just one example to me that we noted in the paper that, that strikes me as one of those one of those disconnects when DUD is not looking across the services to say, hey, you guys are investing in all these different things, but that's not coming together to provide the joint capabilities we need. So I don't know if you agree with that, Craig, but... Yeah, I think that's right. An example I'd like to point to is you know, ask yourself the question, so what is the best ship killer? I know DOD is wrestling with this one right now. If we're going to stop a PLA invasion of Taiwan, one of our objectives from the beginning has got to be sink a lot of PLA Navy ships and amphibious ships carrying troops. So what is the most effective means of doing so? Surface warfare guys will tell you it's the Navy's destroyers and frigates, if you will. The carrier air wing guys will say, no, it's, a, it's air power off of carriers. Then the Air Force comes in and Sometimes they'll say we can take on we can take on part of that mission, but it's but they don't seem to be wholeheartedly embracing it. And then so you've now you've got the Marines stepping in, the Army saying, oh, we can. It's just everybody say, oh, we can get a piece of that. But who's laying out the guideline that the specific guidance to? All right, in seventy, in, I think it was David Ockmedic said in seventy-two hours we need to demonstrate the capability to sink the, the PLA invasion fleet. Okay, there's your objective. Then how do you best go about that? And it doesn't matter if it's an anti-ship missile launched off of a, of, a, of a bomber coming from a submarine. It's how do you combine all, all of those to be most effective? And I, I just really think that the guidance has got to be more specific in that regard. Is, first of all, OSD and Joint Staff have to come up with a, they really need to come up with a common vision, a clear vision of what it takes to defeat Chinese or Russian aggression. And then they've got to test the services proposals against that vision and through more robust experimentation and more gaming, if you will. And I really believe that the the palms need to be held rigorously accountable against 
those stated objectives. And only those programs that prove their value in achieving those objectives, those are the ones that should get priority funding. But it's just that's not how the process seems to be, from everything I can tell, seems to be working at this point. Yeah, so since the 1980s, at least with Goldwater Nichols, they've been trying to jack up the authority and responsibility for like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the combatant commanders to provide inputs on these program priorities. So you have, of course, the chairman's assessment and program recommendations, which are also fed by the combatant commanders' integrated priority lists. You have unfunded priority lists and requirements and all this type of stuff. Are they just not using their authorities adequately? Like my interpretation of certain people is all of the authorities are there. It's just for some reason, where are the people that can translate that broad strategic guidance into actionable things? Is all the authorities there and people just aren't using them or is something different need to be done? And I think this is where the senior leadership really needs to step in because I don't, again, the COCOMs are supposed to, in, in an ideal world, they're the ones who are supposed to be setting the requirements. They're the ones who are tasked with executing the O plans. If they can't execute that O plan, then they should be saying, telling the services or the, the secretary should be telling the services, deliver the capabilities that PACOM, UCOM, what have you, need to execute that O plan. But when I was in the building, we constantly saw the combatant commands coming and saying, we can't execute XYZ because we don't have that capability. And it still wasn't getting delivered. And that's, again, that's a failure of the senior leadership to be more direct. They've got to be more direct and say, look, deliver that, be it Air Force, Navy, the, what have you, the Army, whoever, deliver that capability that the combatant command needs and do it now. Kind of thing. One thing here, for me at least, like you guys talk about, let's we need to sink a bunch of Chinese ships. You look at something like El Razum or something, and you know they're going to get up to four hundred within a few years. But you probably need thousands of those things. Absolutely. So, how much of this is just we had procurement plans, and those are the procurement plans, and we don't want to pivot them, but we should be pivoting them. And how much of this is how do we inject? new and novel things that we haven't done before. Do you think of there being a difference in this guidance? Because for a near-term thing, it seems we just need to get munitions ramped up. We need the right type of munitions, weapons, platforms, contested logistics things. And then it seems like a little kind of a separate problem in terms of, okay, what types of autonomous things will start to fill these gaps in the future? How do you think about that? I think you hit it right that it's, there's the near-term deterrence credibility challenge. And then there's longer term thinking, right? In the near term, it's not a matter of platforms because you're not going to IOC anything big, new and special within the next five to six years, if you will. So it's going to have to be a payloads, a munitions issue. And that means just ramping up production of what we have now and trying to get that out to the command commands as fast as we can. But it's also using things that hopefully we're coming, we're thinking of using things in new and creative ways to try to confound the adversary and pose, put them on the horns of dilemma, if you will, and come at them from multiple vectors and multiple domains. And we're at that point where we're limited in our response options. So we've got to start thinking creatively. I think longer term, where you can start to see things flow into the force in terms of more, more autonomous aircraft, more autonomous undersea or surface, what have you. But man, we're still years away from delivering that for those capabilities. If I could add one thing there, there's no excuse on the munitions front in general. I think that's just always been the bill payer for a lot of different things. But I think you did hit one thing on the head, Eric, in terms of the trade space. So when the services are going through 
and developing the POM, one of the major constraints that they have is this idea of full funding. And that essentially means that all the MDAP programs that they've already signed up for, they have a funding profile. And so the requirement from Congress is that they be fully funded. And so they know right off the bat, okay, what are my MDAP? What's the updated cost estimates for them phased for execution issues or whatever? And once they get those numbers, they plug them in and it's almost like law, right? They put those numbers in and then they're like, okay, what do we have left? And then they run down that list. Okay, this is a priority. This is a new thing that we're going to start or we're going to add some additional dollars to this ongoing thing. So they really do think when the services are going through it, they think about it in those three ways. They think about it as a new initiative. They think about it as a plus up to an ongoing initiative or if they could actually decrease something and consider it an offset, they might try to retire something. And that's what you've seen recently where the services go through this and they say, here's all the must-pay bills essentially. And they go, crap, I don't have any money left for all the other things I want to do. So I'm going to try to offset that with some retirements. And then it gets into that battle. We don't want you to retire that. So where do I get the money to do all these other new things? So it is a tough one for the services in that regard. And I'll just jump in on one other, one of the key challenges we're always harping on is everything's program centric. So we really need to get more towards broader mission threads, mission themes. Hey, anti-surface warfare, here's the strategic objective and not get down into the, well, here's the individual program programmed out over the next five to 10 years to open it up that as new technologies emerge, as autonomous systems, as new weapons capabilities emerge that they can get folded into the environment to go after key threats, key strategic objectives. So building in more dynamic portfolio management, as we'll talk about later, is going to be a key effort and use that iteratively. So as industry comes in with new solutions, whether it's commercially available or something in development, use that to then shape some of the strategic plans and some of the con-ops with the combatant commands and then iterate as opposed to laying it all out ahead of time via a five-year long-term plan. I hear you guys on the full funding. I just had a little blog post on the idea of Gresham's Law where like program behavior drives out unprogrammed behavior. And I think that's part of the issue with the innovation piece as opposed to how do we get the right mix of the current procurement stuff to deter in the very near term. And I was concerned the discussion was, hey, we need more top-down direction on this strategic guidance. And it definitely feels that way for things that we can war game out and know pretty well what the certainties or uncertainties are. But it also makes me fearful on the other front where you're trying to push too much direction and top-down guidance too early in the research and development phase. So like when you require full funding before you start prototyping something, it feels like a little bit too much. When I look back in time, at least my nostalgia, the 40s and 50s, it seems like the problem was the services were actually going too fast. They wanted to put and take on new systems at scale, like missiles, nuclear ships, hypersonic vehicles, all this other stuff, radars. Everyone had their own kind of programs, and it looked very competitive and wasteful to some degree. But they were able to get them out really fast and the idea was, we can't afford all these things. You're going to have to make trade-offs. But it seemed like it, like that ability to have diversity on the front end actually gave you more options on the back end to do that kind of optimization from strategic guidance. Because when you say, let's stop China in a way, what emerging technology can be applied in that? It's all a bunch of opinions that will conflict. There's no one kind of way you can rack and stack them in my mind. Was there something different about the 40s and 50s? Or am I off base on, on that assessment? What's your guys' view? I mean, I don't know. My quick take is that the one thing that the 40s and 50s had is that they were staying a little bit more to the basics in terms of 
yeah, some of the bombers were cutting edge in terms of how they were designed and things like that, but they didn't have some of the complexities that I think we've taken on today. I think we've really allowed sort of the requirements to drive us to where every single platform now is pushing this huge technology barrier and having to, you know, as Dr. Roper used to say, have four or five miracles for it to to be able to field on time. And I think back in the 40s and 50s, they adopted more of that mindset of, okay, maybe we need one miracle to make this, this new high altitude bomber. But I don't think they were wrapping so many requirements into one package. And I think that's a little bit of the problem we've had where we are, like Pete was saying, we are very reliant on the single platform because we've put all of our hopes and faith into that. And I think we do need to move to a place like, like where you are getting at. And I referenced using a venture capital approach to research and development where maybe you do have four or five things floating out there. And that's not inefficient. What it's doing, right, is giving you options. And at some point, you're going to have to make a down select and say, I can't afford all of these. These two look very promising. And if you get to where you're specializing a little bit more and not trying to create a single fighter that can do be the best dog fighter, the best interdiction, the best uh, suppression of air defenses, you're not trying to do all those things in one, one package, then you can actually say, well, I'll take this and that. And together, those can, they can achieve the effects I need. So I don't know. That's a little bit my quick take on that. I think also it was... A- a more exploratory time. I look back at the, the, the early missile era and the post-Sputnik era where all the services went all, all in on developing missile. And there was a real there was a real push to see who could get the longest range and most most payload, et cetera, et cetera. And, but it was just this kind of exploratory time in terms of weapons development. And I don't think I don't think we're, A, we don't have the same imperative, right? When the Cold War arms race lent a a certain imperative to every action that DOD was taking, especially when you have something like the Sputnik moment where it was like, oh my God, we're far behind the Soviets in development, the bomber gap, if you will, what have you. And we just, again, it goes back to, and this is why I say top down. One example I use is looking back at what Secretary Gates was trying to do when he first came into the building, right? He had a specific mandate. It was reverse the really awful trends that were happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so he issued some very specific directives and he was very public about it. It was interesting the way that the method he used of going about achieving what he, the vision he, or the direction he thought the building should go. So he used public speeches to do, he would very publicly say, look, we need more MRAPs, if you will. We need more UAV orbits, if you will. We need to get the, the that golden hour. We need to, to be able to achieve this. So we set these very public objectives, and which gave very little wiggle room then for the, the services that they had to meet these. And then, of course, he fired a service secretary and a service chief when he didn't think they were moving fast enough. But again, I think that's a good example of what if there is an imperative which was then the, the Iraq and Afghanistan war slipping away, then I think you can get, you can marshal the forces or the impetus needed to get people moving in the direction you think they should be going. But if we look back at that period and say, oh, it, it was very important that we win these wars or at least change the trend of those wars, I, it's even more so today because any kind of, obviously any kind of a conflict with China would be so critical to our standing in the strategic landscape and our, our standing in the world. I, I don't see why there's not that same imperative holding today. And it's it it's so frustrating. Yeah. So you guys, in one of your recommendations, was, it was a challenge-driven defense planning guidance. And of course, like the whole idea, we do have a very linear top-down, at least on paper informally, right? Strategy-driven program. 
and budgeting system. So it's supposed to go the national security strategy to the national defense strategy to the national military strategy. And these are all at different layers of the hierarchy. And then they feed that the defense planning guidance, which tells the services what the strategy and what the top leadership wants to see in their program objectives memorandum or their build for the budget and the types of systems and programs that they're going to want to request in the next budget. But a lot of people have been saying there needs to just be more concrete guidance in that DPG, the defense planning guidance. What does that look like? Can you give us like a real specific kind of look at what a challenge-driven DPG might look like and how that would actually drive the services to pivot what they're doing? Yeah, it goes back to some examples I was citing earlier. I think it would take the secretary coming out and saying, all right, again, lay out the example. We need to be able to sink the PLA amphibious fleet within this time frame and state it publicly. And this is the 2018 NDS had a few, it laid out a few in the classified version anyway, it talked about a few operational challenges, but it would, the NDS, the review commission criticized that for keeping it classified because then it doesn't give in, then it doesn't provide anybody a yardstick where they can measure whether the components are moving in the right direction to enable achieving, taking, reducing those challenges or overcoming those challenges, if you will. And so we're at a very different period today than we were back when the NDS was written, when you when people were so very wary of even mentioning a competition or conflict with China. Now you have senior leaders openly talking about a war fight with China. Spell it out in specifics so that then Congress, the public, they can all see they can, all, they can all have open discussions about, are you making progress towards achieving these specific objectives? And the more specific, the better. And, and it's a, take the most complicated scenario we have, which is trying to defeat a PLA invasion of Taiwan. Break it down into the steps of what you need to achieve, what you need to do to be able to defeat that. And, and then issue, that's the challenge, if you will. And then hold the services Again, that's that hold them accountable, its components rigorously accountable to executing against that scenario. And Eric, I know you, you mentioned concern about being too top down. And I think that was a concern of mine as well throughout this paper was uh, we don't want to tell the services every little thing they have to do. Like you have to buy that UAV with that weapons package, with that range. Like some of, the, some of that does need to come out in the innovation at the lower levels. And so I think this is the happy marriage that, that needs to occur where you do what Greg says and you lay out those key challenges, be as specific as possible. The services say, okay, it, here's my contribution. Here's the, my services piece to that challenge. And maybe you do have some duplication so that there's a coverage there. So it's not just like it's parsed super precisely, but services generally know how they can contribute. Is that going to be more of a maritime thing or air domain? So with that, they can then give the PEOs and the programs and say, hey guys, we need you to go figure out what's out in the industry. How can we apply new autonomy technologies or new networking functionality and space technology? How can we bring all those new technologies there? Some that might be commercial services, some that might be military unique things that coming out of military labs or what have you. But how can we employ all of that to develop the most cost-effective capabilities to achieve those effects against that challenge. So I think that's where the marriage comes in, where it's not it's not completely OC on micromanaging services, but giving enough guidance so that they have clear vectors and then they can bring the innovation to bear. So 
Let's move into kind of the budget planning and collaboration. I think we've already delved into that for that kind of bridge between strategic guidance and then actual programming for the budget and how the services do that. You guys talked a little bit about the services moving away and DOD moving away from jointness. What are those signs? What do you mean by that? There's a lot of indications, right? If you look at you look at the Joint Strike Fighter, that was a the F-35 was a joint program, but the Navy was never really on, totally on board with it. And I think you've seen now with NGAD, they want to go off and do their own thing. And so that's one example. You have a lot of different hypersonic programs that are going on. Some of that is good. You want that duplication. But there's clearly sort of a, an eye to, I want to get this mission set because it makes my service relevant. And so it's less of a where does it make sense? Like, where does, where does it make sense to employ hypersonics for this particular these operational challenges, like we said? So I think in general, you can see when you kind of look at the different platforms and the focus on we can do that mission, even though it seems sometimes sub-optimized for that service to take that on. And then the other one, a big one right now is, right, is JADC2. There's all kinds of big money being put into sort of developing these different capabilities, but the services are not really coordinating and collaborating the way they need to make it all come together in the end. And that's probably one of the bigger ones. But the thing that always struck me and where I think if you're in the building, that jointness is not a priority for the services in general, is that they don't talk very often about their individual programs or technologies during the budget development. There's a very minimal amount of coordination. And that was what really struck me when, in, during my time there and why I highlighted in the paper so much about we need that collaboration. We need to get away from thinking about how you preserve the mission for your own service and seeing and supporting where it makes sense. So is that best done in the air domain? Okay, maybe the Air Force is the best one to execute that. And yeah, I don't think there's enough of that. So hopefully that conveys a little bit of it, but there's a lot more to to unpack there. And some of that is just, just the various nature of establishing joint programs. Having a joint program is 10 to 100 times more complicated and riskier than having a service unique program. So I think everyone, anyone who's been around DOD for any period of time understands we need to give the combatant command a joint force that's integrated. But then to have something that's funded by multiple services with different requirements, different priorities, different ways of operations is just adds to the risk and complexity of managing that system. So there are plenty of systems, plenty of capabilities that the Army and the Army, Navy and Air Force have that overlap or critics would say are duplicative of each other. But I think there is value in some inter-service competition, but having a fully integrated joint force, we're still not there. But I think part of that's just the nature of building and executing and deploying individual systems and capabilities. It's so much harder to do it as a joint force than just meeting your service unique requirements and priorities. I think the services are somewhat loaded to pursue missions they can't individually solve. And it's due in large part to the perennial resource competition with the other services and their focus. And it makes sense that this is what the services arguably should be doing, but their, for, their focus is the subset of the operating domains over which they understand and have direct influence and control and de- developing solutions to the tactical problems that arise in those specific domains. And that, sure, that makes sense. But the problem is, as the services control the vast majority of resources in DOD, this, it results in DOD's the routine innovation ecosystem solving for micro-level problems and not large 
macro level problems, such as how do you dismantle China's counter intervention network and destroy a PLA amphibious invasion of Taiwan? So you need to you need some kind of forcing mechanism to solve for those larger macro problems. Yeah, it's interesting because you think that you build up from the requirement and then based on the merit of each individual plan, decide, yeah, this one's going to meet the objective. So I select that one. But it also seems as you guys were just talking, that's actually a root cause of some of the parochialism and the inability to work together. We've had this mentality of how much is enough, build from the requirement, don't just like peanut butter spread money across the services. But in the end, the services just basically get a third, a third, a third. Wouldn't it just be make more sense? Just give them their budget ceilings, top line, make them feel comfortable that this is the kind of amount of money you're going to get. Now just optimize within that to do your thing. That's the best for these mission threads, because each of the services will have something to provide. And the services themselves may even morph a little bit, and that might be healthy for them to morph where their domains intersect, like the missile domain, like like missile technologies, multi-domain in of itself. It's good that these organizations can potentially drift. Any responses to that? Yeah, I think the one thing that did change recently was the Navy has been getting more of a plus up and the Army has been taking a little bit more of a hit. I think it's not quite the one third and the Air Force would always argue is because of its big pass, a classified pass through that they never got the one third. But yeah, you're right. I think this is, we've had these discussions internally about the army clearly is a better posture for the Russia fight, right? They they know how to employ the capabilities that you would need in, in those conflicts that's, that the Ukraine is fighting right now. And, but in the Pacific, it's a little bit more challenging for them. And you'll see this, you see this with the Marine Corps, right? In terms of they need different ships and different things to be able to be as mobile and responsive as they need to be. And it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing they have, but they're expeditionary force. So they're experienced at that. But the army has clearly been trying to work a niche for itself in the Pacific. And so you do have to have, I think, going back to Greg's point about leadership to say, guys, actually, we're really, really focused on this China fight. I think we have most of what we need for the Russia fight. So yeah, we're going to give a much larger chunk to the Navy because we need to deal with an undersea threat or we're going to give a lot more to Air Force bombers because our long-range UAVs or what have you, because we need to be able to take out those penetrating targets. So I think they're. I think you're right. I think those are some of the big priority, big muscle movers that the DoD leadership needs to make. So one of the issues seems to be that it always takes two or three years to get something programmed and appropriated. I think you guys in the report where you're talking about, hey, can we bring some of congressional participation earlier into that process during president's budget review? So before it goes to the Hill, why bring more meetings and more stuff forward? Why not push more of those decisions back into congressional review and maybe comes with like an update or something like that and says, no, we didn't know two years ago, but like now we think that these are some of the priority changes that we'd like. Does that does one make more sense than the other? Yeah, I could see people initially cringing to say getting Congress involved early in the budget development. Absolutely not. But the overall theme is we need increased collaboration. Services and OSD, the combatant commands involved with the Pentagon, the DOD and the Hill and OMB involved as well. So getting that collaboration, not going down into too much of the details of one-off budget line items and get that increased collaboration between DOD and the Hill to then align some of the thinking. Because right now the process is linear and long that services develop the budget, send it up to OSD, to OMB, to the Hill, knowing that when the Hill is doing markups, 
the services know that's already out of date and want to change a dozen things. And Hill gets uh, ticked off that that they're not looking at a accurate picture. So the more we can shrink in the timelines and get a iterative set of collaboration touch points should help uh, throughout the budget lifecycle. Yeah, and I'd say at least when I was there, one one process I saw that was effective was bringing, not necessarily bringing them into the budget process per se, but bringing them into illustrating the threat and then wargaming scenarios so that they could see what those capability gaps were and they became aware of those gaps and what that meant in terms of in operational terms. Oh, we don't have the right anti-ship missiles and or in the quantity that we need. So then that they could translate that themselves and, into what they need to do budget-wise. But I think that can be a very effective tool. The, there was an organization within the Pentagon that put together a briefing, let's call it that our eroding overmatch capability briefing that was classified, and they took it to the Hill. And I remember the responses from this, from senators and such, they were, oh my gosh, we had no idea it was this bad. And it was just, it was laying out what the threat was, how fast they're moving, and where those capability gaps are. And Bros writes about, Chris Bros writes about that in his book, this light bulb that goes off when they were finally getting these briefings from the Pentagon and how bad things really were. But I think if DOD can do that effectively, then it hopefully the, the Hill will respond in the right way. Yeah, that's a great point. Simon Sinek says you start with the why, and if you can get buy-in on the why, then you can get better agreement on the how. Great point, Greg. Just having seen this with some of the retirements, attempted retirements, it's also the only way to really get across the fact that this is why these platforms, while they may have served a fantastic role in the past, that's why these platforms are not as relevant for today's fight. And Craig said why we need XX capability. And that, that was a little bit of some of our recommendations about the joint vision, having the services having a joint vision, is if you can take that joint vision, translate that into the budget inputs that, that the different services are proposing, and you can tie those, thre- those threads together with the operational picture, as Greg was articulating, then Congress really has a much broader view, I think, of the budget when they go into deliberations of the individual investments and how they roll up into this larger uh, effective fighting force. And I think that has been missing for a really long time. I think the way that most of the congressional uh, staffers look at the budget is by the service, by the individual platform. It's not this holistic capability kind of approach. Sometimes they will focus on force structure and things like that. But I think, what to Greg's point, that would give a much more holistic picture to the budget. Yeah, so the services like to retire a bunch of stuff. We've seen the F-22, the E-18Gs. And a lot of times the Congress will block them, right? They'll be like, no, we can't get rid of these things. But then DOD will say, the 18s, they they emit all sorts of stuff. They're just going to get shot out of the sky. I don't know if you guys saw there was supposedly, I don't know if it's true, but an MQ-9 that got shot down over Syria. So some of these things might not be as survivable in the future battlefields. And it's hard to get that across sometimes. So it, in my mind, it seems like, how do you get that all together? No one human can comprehend how all this stuff comes together. We need to get on the same waveform as Congress. And it's just like Congress isn't doesn't exist. There's no such thing as Congress. There's a bunch of members and people that sit in a building. It's the same thing with DOD. So there's not like these monolithic entities. How do you break that down? As things go get more and more complex and go faster and faster, how do you keep everyone 
on the same page. I think you're talking about that back in the 80s, there was the Defense Reform Caucus. There were these groups within Congress that they prided themselves on knowing the, the minutia of weapon systems and how to fight the Soviets and the Soviet threat. Sam Nunn being a, the archetypal example, probably. But they, we're seeing there's a few of those folks on Capitol Hill, but clearly not enough of them. How do you bring the kind of that quorum together, fellow travelers, and educate them on what is needed to to counter China or Russia? And I think it's an education process as much as anything else. And that's probably his fault that they're not doing that better. But the, the Congress people have to be they have to be willing to learn more about it, and they have to have an interest in doing so. Yeah, it seems like Congress also gets pissed off because it seems like. The department is hiding things or does a bunch of shady things, one of which is like this idea of a gold watch in the budget. What are gold watches and why does that piss people off? Yeah, I I definitely understand why uh, Congress does not like that. But yeah, this is a natural part of the budget budget process internal to the building in terms of if you have to make some really hard trade-offs and you decide, I'll mark my F-35s down from 45, which... I know is the number that will be most palatable on the Hill, but I'll mark it down to 32. That'll free up money and I can go fund this other thing. And I know that the staffers and XX committees will not let me keep that at 45 and they will go find the money. So maybe they'll, maybe I'll get lucky and they'll find it from the army or I do think it is a risk though. And I'm not sure it always plays out for the services because they can't predict where that money will come from. And it may come from one of their keystone programs being shaved or maybe pulled back a little bit. It's a risky strategy, but it does happen. And it's probably not good business. Yeah. So we're talking like some of the budget issues here. And one of the other ones that constantly comes up is this idea of this valley of death. And as Pete was talking about earlier with the program of record, you have to do all this documentation. It takes years to do the documentation and then ask, get the requirement and ask Congress for the money and then them to approve it. So like doing something new in the Department of Defense literally takes an act of Congress. And so it's not hard to imagine why not that many new things relative to the size actually may may get started or or scaled up. There's all this idea of we, we need some special funds to fill that gap, right? We need these funds that are not programmed to a specific weapon system, but can be used to do technology insertion across a broader range of things. What are these funds and what characterizes their success? I guess you're talking about the, all the innovation funds that we went through in the paper. And yeah, we've, had, we've talked before, Eric, about this idea of these funds are useful in some modest ways, but they really obscure the larger challenges, which Pete alluded to, right, this program of record, fully funded kind of mentality where all of your money gets, gets soaked into these long-term efforts that you can't really deviate from. And so these innovation funds are a way of maybe bringing in some new things that might not have made it through the process, but you really need the reform, the larger reforms to be able to move to that portfolio construct where innovation, solving the value of death is just something that happens as part of the normal business. It doesn't become this disruptive or special thing. And I think that's a little bit of the fear that I have with these innovation funds is that you have to be super special to get in there. And then you don't know what your future life is going to be because you only get these innovation funds for a year or two. And then and then you're fighting, hey, I'm, I'm, I've, I've made some progress. And now, now take me in and grow me up. But sometimes you're outside of the system that you need to be in to get that advocacy. 
And so you're not even in the right place to get that long-term funding. So I think there's a lot of sort of disadvantages of that approach. If those funds were put at a lower level, like we've talked about before, those funds were put not at the R&E, not the highest level of the department, but more at the lower levels to allow the PEOs and the different program managers to solve like those operational challenges we talked about and say, here's some innovation funds for you to go solve these operational challenges. And it was just a pot of money to go explore all the commercial options out there or what's coming from the lab. Then I think they could be more effective. But as they are right now, I think it's very stovepipe, it's very limited, and it's hard to see them having the long-term effect we want. And just to add, it, it was, uh, there were a number of initiatives that the COCOMs would come to the deputy or the secretary and say, look, Here's a challenge we just cannot solve, and we need, we really need help. We need to throw us some money or come help help us come up with some solutions. And so there's that need that clearly that need is there. There's the demand signal is there. It's just that where does that come from? The corporate money or where does that come from? And one of the processes I saw is typically what happens at the USD or what have you, it slaps, slaps the sap on it and to reduce scrutiny of this program just to keep people from messing with the money. And you're um, saying special access programs classify? They classify it, it so no one touches it? Yeah, exactly. So it's hands off, try, just trying to get these initiatives to survive, which is not the optimal way to go about it for sure. Yeah. And one last thing in the paper, we really highlight there's so many of these one-off things and they're helpful, but in a case they're band-aids. So we're trying to fix the underlying system and structures so that you don't need these special funds, that you have that flexibility with rigor to effectively manage the budget from early S&T through field systems. Um, but part of the recommendations are lay out that primer of here are all the funds, here are the processes, here's the purpose, and how do you navigate them? And then, you know, what's the measure of success? And eventually we could sunset these as they get folded into the the broader system and address the underlying issues. But in the interim, there's so many one-off pots of money that it's confusing to those in the building and on the Hill on finding the right funding source for your initiative, your program. Yeah. One of the concerns I've heard with these types of funds is that Let's just say you have a certain type of fund. Like it can either feel like it's a lottery held way too high and no one really wants to participate or there's just too many people for too little or that the services might know that a certain amount of a certain fund might have a certain type of stuff so they can reduce their their budget requests in certain things and then just fill it in with those funds. And one of the ones that's been getting a lot of attention recently is the Pacific Defense Initiative and the European Defense Initiative. And one of the criticisms that's come out from that one is like most of the money goes to these giant platforms, buy a couple of DDGs, buy some aircraft. But what the combatant commanders seem to have been prioritizing is, again, these munitions, contested logistics, communications and C4ISR type stuff. What's going on there? What's the breakdown? You guys had a recommendation on how that might actually work. Yeah, the, so the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, as well as EDI, which was the European one, which just started earlier, is a symptom of what we really just discussed as well, which is that the, the integrated priority lists from the COCOMs that the services get that OSD gets, they weren't being met. So like you said, those specific needs that you mentioned, uh, contested logistics and uh, munitions and and things like that, infrastructure are are outstanding needs of the COCOMs for the fight tonight. And the services were just not prioritizing them in the way that that maybe they should have, or maybe they didn't view it as as their service, something that their service should handle. And so it's falling through some of those seams. And I think the PDI and EDI 
we're a way for the COCOMs to actually get real money, not to necessarily have to fight through the PBR, a program and budget review, when OSD has the palms and is trying to adjudicate all these things, is actually give them some upfront money so they know, okay, I can get my missile defense system in Guam. I can get some extra munitions for this particular challenge I have. But ideally, this would not necessarily be needed and would just be built into the flexibility of the capability manager at the per- or the program office where they would roll this into their planning and say, okay, we need to make sure this is addressed, this is addressed. I do think there are some of those infrastructure things, right? When you're building new buildings or uh, standing up new things that probably do need to be handled at the OSD level. So some of this could also come from the 10% withhold that we had recommended. What's that withhold all about? And Greg, come in on and anything else you want to say on that? Oh, well, I was just going to add on the on the PDI. I, th- I think it goes back to some of this the whole jointness problem we were talking about. Who's munitions? I think it was one of the classic examples. Who's going to fund that? Extending that LRASM by is it just going to be the Navy? Is that is are they left holding the bag on that one, or is the Air Force going to chip in? So I think that's where something like the PDI or EDI, if you will, can come in and help. But again, there's got to be a way to fold that into the to the system itself, so they're not subject to the vagaries of whoever on the hill that they are that they seem to be today but why for example like if i wanted to put a bunch of lrasms in my pdi wouldn't the navy just be like hey let me just i already have some buys for the lrasm let me just cut those in half here because i know the pdi is going to cover up some of that shortfall (laughs) right and then Uh, they'll just reprioritize it into something else and you just wouldn't have seen it or someone would have to go back and be like, what was in your fit up a couple of years ago versus what you're saying today? And what, what do you think about that? Yeah, geez, that's going to always happen. That's why I'm a big fan of why don't we have a munitions stockpile plan, something along a 30-year munitions plan or something, something along the shipbuilding plan. Why do we, why have these things been the constant bill payer they have for years and years? Yeah, I wish I had a, a, a better answer on that one. I am shocked that there's gambling in this institution. No one games <laughs> the system like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just the complexity of the environment. And there's too many of these one-off things. So it's trying to fix the underlying system so we don't have the, these games between the services, between the COCOMs and the Hill, that you lay out the strategic plans, you shape your investments that are going to have the maximum mission impact. You get agreement at the high level from across DOD and Congress on, here's the mission imperatives. Here's where we're going to focus our investments, and then you get into the more tactical details. But there's always going to be these budget games throughout the process. Well, it certainly feels like when you have a super complex regular process, and then you have all these little other processes on the side to go around that process, like all those things are always just going to have unintended negative consequences to a degree that from that, we're just like pushing on different incentives and then exposing other bad incentives that we didn't intend for. Shouldn't the system just be much simpler, much more clean? But I think it does go back to that. So contested logistics, for example. So whose mission is contested logistics? Which component is going to pick that one up? That's is it is it the Navy? Or they but no, it's not just a Navy problem. The Air Force is the Air Force is even in worse shape in the Western Pacific in terms of throughput. Which component is it going to get hit with the bill on on solving the logistics problem in the Western Pacific? But why isn't it that like the Navy should be like, man, I'm just going to make all these logistical ships that are attritable and fast and whatever. I'm going to increase my budget share by doing that. 
How come that just doesn't, isn't that the logical way that you would have expected it to happen in the way that you guys are talking about it? I think in an ideal world, certainly not, you would see something like that, but is that the prestige mission for the Navy or is it how many carrier battle groups and carrier air wings can we have operational at any one time? But I think to your larger point, Eric, the, the system is met because these decisions are made primarily in a vacuum in the sense that, like contested logistics, there are a few indications that the Army, Air Force, and Navy are having meetings to say, hey, guys, how are we going to handle contested logistics? And the Navy saying, yeah, I got all these ships. I can bring these ships and deliver all these things here. If you guys can get it to Hawaii or if you guys can get it here. Those kinds of conversations are the things that, that, that we would like to see happen more so that they don't have to happen during the PBR process. And or separately as part of these EDI and, C and, P and PDI funds. So I think you're right. The system is messier by virtue, by, by the fact that that collaboration, those early discussions where the services do actually come up with a joint vision for how to solve some of these real capability gaps or functional issues that they have, and it could be a lot simpler. One question here, we talked about, like the, we have these special funds, right? They give you additional flexibility to put money where you want it in the year of execution. So I got the money. I didn't have to tell Congress exactly where it was going to go years before. Um, and I have some flexibility to move it around to address emergent needs. Another type of execution flexibility is you can't just move money between these programs after you've given it to me. But it seems like, you know, moving all this money around also gets Congress nervous, right? <laughs> like they don't, they want to see like a stable executable plan. And I think that's to some degree what you guys have also been saying. Get the strategic guidance, tell the services to program for it correctly. So do we need all the execution flexibility type stuff if you get the strategic guidance and the DPG right? Could you go back and actually fix and make PBE better? Hey, we've been trying to do this for 60 years, but we've just been, we just haven't been able to do it right. Or is there something kind of like fundamental about execution flexibility it just needs to be driven into the system? Yeah, getting the strategic plans right will help reduce the, some of the flexibility needs in execution. But I think you're always going to have a high need for greater execution or flexibility. Operations are going to change. Threats are going to change. Technology is going to change. When we're still operating with that two to three year lead time, you can't effectively plan to say, you know, what technologies are going to emerge out of the commercial sector, out of DARPA and the labs to cross that valley of death. And then how do we scale that up? Or some new threat in a theater emerges that we weren't thinking about two to three years ago. Matt did some great work in the paper in DOD and FY22 had $246 billion in investment accounts. That was broken out across 1,700 budget line items with a median size of $38 million each. So when you're compartmentalizing the budget down to 1,700 different boxes and to move funding between one box to another requires an act of Congress if you want to move anything meaningful, you're pretty much stuck with what you baked into the system a long time earlier. So you absolutely need greater flexibility. And we laid out a whole series of recommendations and scenarios in the paper for working through that. You know, New Start is one of the is one of the biggest challenges. If you actually do have that model, especially on the RDT&E side, where you are pursuing different options and then letting them filter through into what's the best things to, to actually take to the field, you inherently need a certain level of flexibility to say, yeah, this effort over here that may have been in a separate budget line and this effort over here, I'm actually going to draw down. I'm seeing this one's not quite as successful. It needs more time. We're going we're gonna to draw that one down and go all in on 
on this one to get that fielded. In order to do that, you would have to shift funding in the year of execution or very near to it to be able to surge the one that's having the most success. And that's a lot of the a lot of the vision for having the middle tier of acquisition programs is being able to prototype different things. And if it works and the operator likes it, you scale that. It's very hard to scale in the current system. And that's just one of the things with the valley of death and commercial sectors is really worried about is if you do see something that you're like, Greg's laid out this challenge and he's like, yeah, the Navy just needs to be able to do this. And some commercial vendor comes in and says, I could do that. You go, crap, I don't have a requirement. I don't have a program established. I don't have the new start authority from Congress. So I need to do all that stuff to get after it. That's a huge lag. And so that I think is why we need that flexibility in the year of execution. So yes, could we do better in some of our planning if we had that more joint joint mentality and we had this collaboration? Yes, but yeah, ultimately you would still need that. For some reason, I don't understand to some degree like why you need so many new starts. I need to get after the mission of deterring China or defeating their ability to land on Taiwan. Let's just say I see something from the commercial market that helps me network or there's an improved sensor. I probably have some requirement out there and some money that's going to something similar that has a similar requirement. And But you hear from people that they're just like, yeah, it's the same thing, but I put AI on it. So I didn't need this this human to bang on the boards. Now it's a different requirement, even though it's like accomplishing the same ends and you could make the trade off within that. What's going on there? Could you just write these justification documents and have more general requirements and you just have more flexibility within the exact same system. Yeah, well, I'm ahead with what we're trying to get to with portfolio requirements. Now, I think today, most, if you say, hey, I identified an, a shiny new capability. Yeah, you may be able to find something that you could fold it under, but for the most part, that's already a predefined point solution. You may already have a, a contractor on contract work in that solution. So it's harder to then pigeonhole some new capability in there. But what we're trying to get, and this is part of a broader JSIDS reform, is instead of writing program and system requirements to write out a broader capability portfolio to say, I need this set of capabilities. And then that can more effectively capture all the new capabilities that come on board, as well as the stuff that we already have in some stage of tech development and early R&D to then capture. So we definitely want to enable much more of a dynamic portfolio for all the new starts. I would love to see many more new starts, many more new things come on board, but it's such a high barrier of entry. It's tough to start new things. It's hard today in the current environment to to cram it into something that looks looks and smells a lot like what you're trying to do. And on the Hill side, I think Pete addressed the challenges internally, but the Hill expectations are too that that you have a minutely defined requirement and that you've spelled that out in the, I I put an example in the paper on on what a major thrust looks like. And there's a lot of complaints about those not being detailed enough and not having enough information in there. And so I think there's a desire also from the hillside to have that discreteness. And while Pete's vision is where we need to go, I think we do have some hurdles with some some of the committees on they they actually want to see that even be defined in more detail. So that I think that I think will conflict with the, that vision that, that you had, Eric. There with yeah, why don't we just have these more open ended, have more flexible sort of budget lines? Yeah, yeah. I, I was just, I would just add that I think one of the most positive things that DoD has done recently is moving 
to a much more threat-driven capability development. And the former vice, Hyten, said that he often remarked that that was the most important singular effect of the 2018 NDS is it did shift DOD's thinking to more looking at a specific threat and evolving threats and then developing solutions to address those, which gets to mission-driven rather than just some kind of requirements-driven, if you will. You know, he said a lot of the right things in my mind. And then when the new JSIDS manual dropped in, and I think it was like October 21, looks a lot more of the same, if not more detailed. Even for the software ICD, the initials capability document, which is supposed to be this kind of abbreviated thing, 40 days and you're probably going to have revisions, so probably longer than that. And then there was like 11 pages of all these things you need to fill out, of just guidance on the things you need to fill out for a software ICD. So I don't know. What's your view of what that breakdown was there? Or was there a breakdown? Uh, I think there would think he, I think he admitted there was a breakdown, but he didn't really, he didn't change the JSIS or JROC process as much as he had hoped to. Yeah. I- Again, I think that's part of the broken nature of the system is that part of it isn't working. Matt and I are working on a paper right now trying to look at alternative ways of capability development, and one of those being joint concept driven. And how do you take the work that J7 has been doing and coming up with a new joint warfighting concept, and how do you translate that? into capabilities. And I think that's going to take, again, more reform of JSIDs or fixing JSIDs or blowing it up. I'm not sure what the answer is there. Blowing it up. Yeah, I second that. Yeah, And the software ICD was a good stepping stone because it replaced the legacy IT box model where you had to then spell out detailed cost estimates and break it out by appropriation across the FIDIP when at the early stages, you have the least about the program. So don't tell me what in year four your procurement breakout funding is going to be, because that's just a random guess. So it it did pivot it more to high level, outline the capability needs, here are the threats, here's the strategic elements of the key functionality you need, and then go off and then you can iterate on the details in subsequent documents and processes. JSTs and PPE need to be in a greater aligned, much more iterative, but I think it was a step in the right direction given where software's headed. Who cares about what's going on in, in year four? That seems to be a fundamental disagreement, right? To me, it feels like, okay, you need all this planning and documentation to do like a small new start, but you don't even really know whether you like, you just wanted to create the option and prototype it and see what works. You didn't want to commit to production before you started and make those trade-offs in the out years. So you're not like showing something unaffordable in your future projections. And it would be like in the commercial sector, giving like a series A firm and say, before you get to this series A amount of money, like, $5 $5 million, let's just say, or Series B, you're going to have to do all of your documentation for an IPO, like an initial pop- public offering. And you got to have your generally accepted accounting principles and do all this other stuff. But if you force every company to do that, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Because one in a thousand or one in 10,000 is going to generate a lot of those returns and scale. And really, you're, like the whole point of investment was the optionality of investment. And of course, if you put them all together, they'll look unaffordable, they'll look inconsistent, but you need that inconsistency in a complex system. What's your, kinda, what's your view on that? Because it seems like what Congress is saying, hey, you can't start something without knowing who the transition partner is. If we're going to fund something and you're just going to cycle in and not transition anything, it's just more of the same. So if you're not doing all this planning, the programming, budgeting, all these cost estimates, documentation, test strategies, sustainment strategies, intellectual property strategies. If you don't do that right now, then you're never going to do anything. So we need to make sure that you've 
planned everything out. What's the, how do you guys look at that, those two views? Is it even possible to think of defense programs in that kind of commercial way? I would say yes, because, I mean, I've always considered it just an absolute fallacy that, and this is so predominant in the acquisition system, that if you don't have something documented ad nauseum, the programs just won't do it. And it's just that's not how the execution of a contract or a program or any other kind of effort, even you know, some non-formal program, there are things that you go through and that you want to make sure. You want to make sure the government is getting a good deal. So there is this fallacy that you need a 500-page lifecycle support plan and a 600-page accompanying system engineering plan, or you're just going to sit there on your hands all day and do nothing. And no, I think the documentation thing has really been overkilled. And I think on the transition front, I think what we have done is we've tried to make prediction the key to our planning. So instead of planning in terms of, hey guys, how are we going to form the right stakeholders here? How are we going to work together as a team? Doing that relationship building with the different organizations, working out all the kinks. Instead of the time spent in the things that would be most value added, there's an awful lot of time spent developing documents, staffing them, begging people, can you sign this? Oh, where's that at in staffing? Oh, I think it needs to go to this person first. There is so much wasted effort in the Pentagon over that types of th- those types of things. And I think like Dr. Roper always used to say, you can have speed with rigor. And that's really needs to be the paradigm with this is, yes, you can have the rigor, the engineering rigor, the planning rigor, but you can do it faster and not as not the way we do it today. Another one of the concerns here relatedly, I think, is that Congress doesn't seem to have the most insight onto some of these smaller programs, ACAT-2s and the 3s, for example, the middle tiers of acquisition. It seems like DOD itself and OSD is having a hard time keeping track of all these things. There was like a report from GAO, I think it was last year or so. Basically, they said, we asked the services for their ACAT-2s and they couldn't even give us a list. Don't you think they should be able to compile a list? So maybe that's some of the skepticism of, okay, Congress will often say, we've given you authorities in the past and you just don't tell us how you use them and you don't demonstrate that they're useful at all. Why do we even give you these things? You can't even tell us what ACAT-2s you have. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I don't think that's a fair assessment. And don't get me started on GAO. The he does need to do a better messaging on some of the new authorities they get and convey the impact it's having. And there's plenty of challenges and reasons why, whether it's a small sample set or just messaging through the Pentagon gets muddled. But for oversight of the smaller programs, So there's a balance between visibility and oversight. We're trying to, even Congress, recognizing in the 16 through 20 NDAs, kept focusing on exempting programs from some of the more arduous MDAP or or JSIDs oversight responsibilities to say, hey, these are smaller programs, lower risk, go fast and deliver. We don't need congressional and every corner of OSD and joint staff, you know, reviewing ACAT 3 programs for cost schedule performance. The services should have, what are the ACAT 2s and 3 list of programs? But it's getting into the details of who's responsible for program oversight. And that's where I at least believe you should be primarily responsible for program oversight to make sure they're executing properly with SAEs overseeing the broader portfolios across the PEO. And then obviously OSC and Congress have their, their responsibilities as well. But it's not to micromanage an ACAT-3 program to say, why 10% behind schedule on, on this release? So they're striking that right balance. And on, and on the just on the front about why they couldn't necessarily give all the programs, it wasn't that the leader acquisition leadership had forgotten about them. It was much more of a, 
of an IT system kind of thing. The PEOs were managing those lower level programs and the headquarters just wasn't, didn't have that direct oversight over, over all of them. And so it wasn't just this like quick turn of the button. You could easily sort of provide this comprehensive list. So, you know, I think the key there is that it's not as if that wasn't being managed. It was more just an IT system, which are, we could have a whole another podcast on IT systems, but yeah, that's one nuance there. So it's like the, basically like the DOD audit problem where it's like, we kind of know where all this money is. It's just in a bunch of different systems and they don't aggregate up. So like you can't get a top level view all that easily or conform to all that kind of similar problem as that? Yeah, different information is going to different places. And yeah, it doesn't always all feed up the way some of that has been corrected, as I understand. But yeah, that's a little bit of the vision with Advana is that all of that will flow up and be more consolidated at the top. So you can do analytics and things like that. Yeah. And also, same thing with the OTAs, right? FPDS is not designed to understand where below the consortium level. I mean, is this just like a general problem? Are there always going to be these niche things like the selected acquisition report style, the defense acquisition executive summary, those standard reports, are those good enough for what this is? Or do we need like a more flexible type of system here that gives visibility at the top, but is also flexible enough to tailor to specific needs? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll hit that in our third paper that lays out the vision of what the modern defense budget system should be. And it all starts with a a robust digital platform. So the more you can have that Uber IT system with multi-level security and access so that you can provide Congress and OSD and other key stakeholders insights, you filter it at appropriate levels by giving them some insight into near real-time information for some high-level elements is going to be key so that everyone can be on the same page while allowing the services to manage the day-to-day program execution. Yeah, absolutely. So there is, and that that goes to building the trust between all the key players is to have greater insight, but historically being in, in the DC area, that gets abused. Once you start getting that phone call of, hey, I see a red uh, red flag on your program, and then they start getting 20 calls of, uh, hey, what's wrong with your program? They're going to stop stop reporting the issues up the chain. Yeah, this, and I completely agree with Pete on transparency. I think we need to provide um, I don't think Congress should have to beg for information from the department. And I thought that was one of the things we noted in our paper is we need to have really radical transparency. And I think that that goes to the point that we had talked about earlier, where the folks reviewing this information really do need that context so that they understand the the technologies, uh, they have some sense of the capabilities that were trying to be generated so that the focus can shift less on the tactical, did that contract slip a month or did they have an issue come up in one of the design reviews? But that's too tactical so that they can see the value that's being generated. Yeah, we are we're being successful in XX tests. We're progressing towards fielding. We're going to have our first fielded unit here. We're going to start scaling here, starting to give those big picture things so they can see that prototypes, all these prototypes are not just living in prototype world, but that they are moving progressively up a ladder and so I think we do need to be able to show that picture so that they have confidence that the money is actually going to result in the capability we need. Yeah, I sometimes wonder how much of it is like some of the, the reporting is just like a warm blanket for people. But we're dancing around some of this IT stuff in terms of I, I just want you guys to maybe explain a little bit. Advana, you, Matt, I think you brought that one up. It's like the department's acquisition IT system. And it's actually a program you can look into the budget for. So they program for that as well. But what is Advana? What does it show today? And what could it be? 
Yeah, that is a good question. And, and I think there still is a lot of progression on what functionalities will be present for the different communities that, that will want to use it. But as it stands today, it's basically aggregating a lot of the historical SAR, O and ONS, all that sort of information. And then on that, the, the incorporation of a lot of new programs that were not being reported at that level. And so the idea is that you can do uh, you can do different analytics on that to identify maybe potential trends or things like that, or to to maybe give data sets, more useful data sets to different communities that might uh, need them. Yeah, there's a lot in work there. I won't pretend to understand all the ins and outs, even though I sit on a couple panels about it. But yeah, I think it will be useful in getting the data in the right place. And then I think the challenge will be, like we talked about, is to make that data useful. And data is only really useful if you understand what you're looking at. So we have this problem with software metrics, right? You can come up with software metrics, but if you're not a software person, you don't really understand that program. You could misinterpret those metrics as being horrible when, in fact, they're actually at the right place or they're maturing appropriately. So you really do need that context. And I think that would be the challenge as those data sets are opened up, not just to fixate on this uh, program breached and they have their RDT&E, their, fuck, their program acquisition unit cost is higher than what they anticipated. Maybe they added more capability. Maybe they accelerated fielding. So you don't know, if you don't know those details, this can easily get out of control. But the idea is to enable that a little bit better. How can oversight actually take time into account? Whether you feel this in five years, 10 years, 50 years, like that doesn't have any bearing on whether a program goes forward or not to a degree or whether I should pay more to to accelerate something. It seems what's the cost of this thing? And here's the requirement. Go do it. There's one answer to it. What's your action to that? I think that's the risk calculus is such an important piece. We see this. At least I see this in the whole hypersonic weapons pursuit. Not that I'm a big fan necessarily of hypersonic weapons, but the problem is the cost per test of these things has gotten has gotten so astronomical that no one's willing to shoulder failure, and because it's the price tag is so huge. But if we can some of these to that. That it's not such a catastrophic failure and be more comfortable with, yeah, it's, sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not going to work. But if it's showing progress, then it's worth pursuing. And this is a good, another good reminder for why we need some of those budget reform kind of recommendations we made with regards to like BTRs and consolidation of budget line items and things is, yeah, when you do have something that, that fails, you need to move that money or when you have something that, that you want to accelerate because maybe a new threat's emerged and you go, we really have to move this timeline up. To do that in the year of execution is really hard. And you might have to do an ATR package, which the timelines on that are like six months. You're not going to be responsive to that. And so that's just one more kind of example why you need that budget or execution or flexibility. I think what Congress might say is just tell us what you're going to do, detail what you want to do, and we'll usually just approve that. And if you need to move money around, we have a process for that reprogramming. Just send it on over. It's not our fault that it takes you six months to get it out of the building and get it to us. What would you say to that? Because it seems like this gets back to we need some open endedness, especially early on in a program. But what's happening with middle tier of acquisition, it seems like they're trying to close that aperture much faster than I think was conceived in FY 2016. OSD and GAO, they kind of want to conduct oversight by saying, what is the life cycle plan? You should say, I'm going to go execute at this level. This will be when I'm fielding. 
and this is the transition. I shouldn't be able to say it could be 2x that or zero or 10x that. Like that kind of optionality is scary, or maybe it signals you don't know what you're doing. How would you convince Congress that what we see in the commercial tech sector, in the VC sector, actually makes sense when you're using taxpayer dollars? Yeah, so it goes back to looking at the investment budgets. They're broken up into 1,700 different sub-accounts with tight constraints around them, and they're relatively small. When you look at any one program, you know, there's going to be a number of different ways why a program is delayed throughout the year. There was a protest, there was continuing resolution, any number of things. So you may not be spending your money by the end of the year. Or as you're progressing from your technology maturation risk reduction phase and doing early S&T and R&D, moving to development and then production, there's, those are different funding accounts. Or hey, if you want to do tech insertion that wasn't planned and you want to phase that in, all of that requires reprogramming authority. And priorities are going to change. Threats are going to change. Technology is going to change. It's a very dynamic environment that everything shouldn't require mother may I back to Congress. So that's why in the paper, we went through some recommendations to to not say to balance the speed with rigor, to give that flexibility and insight to say, hey, maybe we consolidate some of the smaller budget line items to say to give that flexibility that you could move funding around to higher priorities. Maybe you increase the BTR threshold for the new starts, maybe provide greater flexibility. Hey, let's experiment with a pilot or two of budget portfolios to build around a capability area. And with all those trade-offs, you then agree to, we'll give Congress regular notification. We'll notify them with 30 days or a quarterly report of all the changes. And if Congress sees that being abused, then you know they could pull it back. But at least increase that. It goes with the broader aspects of ongoing collaboration through the budget development process. But in execution, you need to give those at the more tactical level greater flexibility because there's a thousand and one shifting priorities that you can't manage all the way up through the building and then over to the hill. Yeah, and I think the key here is to is to pilot. Right now, we really haven't tried this new approach of having a lot more flexibility to start things, maybe with smaller dollars, and substituting that with more responsiveness to congressional requests, more insight. Hey, if there's any interest, come down to the program office or We'll come up and give you a rundown of what we're trying to achieve here. Being more responsive and not requiring, not forcing staffers to wait months for a response. And then it's like the super constrained response. It doesn't really answer the mail for them. We talked about Advana. It's like getting feedback on what are the kinds of things that you would like to see. So say, you, say you're willing to give the department that level of flexibility to get after new technology things and AI and autonomy and these new areas that are expanding. What would you want to see in return? And what would that look like? How could we make that contextual for you? So I think that's some of the pilot things that really need to be started immediately to start to flesh out how this could work. Because no doubt, this is a complex thing. There's going to be a lot of hurdles to changing the system. But the only way I think you can start to make progress is if you actually start trying some of this and being willing to have trust and and then call out issues as they present. Well, you guys aren't giving us the information we need. Okay, that's a challenge. How can we solve that? I hear you. I think 99% of the workforce is dedicated, honest, hardworking, and can be trusted. And there's just no other way to than to move at that speed of trust. But a hard, I think, oversight feels like they've been burned in the past. And so it's hard to get over that. Greg, do you want to bring us home? Any final thoughts from you from strategy all the way down to execution? Yeah, I just say, I really hope 
it's our collective hope that the PBBA commission really makes some big muscle movements. And I'd love to see him swing for the fences and make, and not just say, okay, we're going to make some incremental changes or changes on the margin, but really look at this in the aggregate and say, are we losing the military technological competition? Or what is where are the trend lines on the relative military balance right now? And where are they going? And if they're not trending in the right direction, then we need to make some fundamental big changes to the, to, to the whole planning and budgeting process and the way we build programs. And I believe that big change is needed. And I'm just hoping that they, they embrace that calling and really, and really get after it. I think that's a good place to wrap. Matt McGregor, Greg Grant, Pete Modigliani, their new paper is Five First Steps to Modern Defense Budgeting System. And they've written a ton of other good stuff as well over there at MITRE. Check it out. Guys, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. This was great. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you.